Welcome to the Columbia Church Sermon Podcast. We're so excited to share this weekend's message with you. We hope it encourages you, inspires you, and helps you grow in your faith as a whole life disciple. Enjoy the message. I have a condition. I'm pretty sure it's genetic, possibly chronic, and completely untreatable. The condition is called home projectia incompletia. And this is how it works. I start a home project and I never finish it. I have a house full of projects that I've started that are almost done. They're so, so close. But just something keeps me from getting it completed. Usually there's just one or two things that are left undone. I wonder if this is like some psychological trick. I don't know if anybody else suffers from this condition, but I, I was thinking about this. Like maybe it's a psychological trick that I play on myself to say, if I never fully finish it, then if it breaks, it was never really complete or done to begin with, right? So maybe it's like my way of like saying, well, you know, I, I didn't finish it. So it, it's no, you know, it, of course it broke. I, I didn't finish it. So we moved into our house and we moved in. It was a, we bought it as is, which meant it, it needed a lot of work, a lot of renovation. And so I got to work and I started imagining what it could be. I started putting together some Pinterest boards. I watched a lot of HGTV because we had to do it on a budget. So I knew we we're going to do a lot of it ourselves. I got out some graph paper. If you even remember what that is, I scaled the house out, drew it out, took pictures. I spent time in Ikea a ton of time in Ikea, way too much time in Ikea because that was where I was going to get most of everything that I was going to do. I, I, I lived in spreadsheets like a financial analyst, even though I have no idea what they do, but I imagined that I was acting like one. Then I recruited some friends who had skills. There were some particular Colombians that helped me out. I won't name their names because they might not want to get recruited by you, but uh, I knew some Colombians that had some skills, so I recruited them. I recruited my dad, my father-in-law, because I really had no idea what I was doing. And that's why God made parents, right? And so I got them involved. It's also why God made YouTube. So I would watch videos on how to do things. And we completely redid so many things. One of the projects that we took on was the basement. It was an unfinished basement. It had the wood paneling. You remember the wood paneling from the 80s and 90s? You know? So we ripped all that out. We framed it. We insulated. We carpeted. We did trim. We did this. We did that over and over, just knocking things out. Out, knocking things out, and the project was nearly complete. But by the time I ran out of money and those Colombians stopped answering my phone call, there was like one thing left to do, and it was to paint the trim, all the trim around the windows and the doors. All I had to do that, and that was in 2013. This picture is from yesterday, 2023. I'm holding out hope that untreated, unpainted wood is coming back in style someday. Because 10 years later, I've yet to paint it. I have, it probably would take less than a couple hours. But there it sits, waiting for me to finish that project. We also redid our kitchen, tore out the cabinets, tore out five layer of linoleum flooring. I went and I got everything from Ikea, all the cabinets from Ikea. I had done Ikea furniture before, but I figured, of course... For sure, the cabinets are going to be better put together and have better directions. But no, they don't. It was almost the end of my marriage. 
uh, putting those cabinets together, but we did it. We got new flooring. We put new hardwood floor. I had a friend who had the hardwood floor gun or whatever. We did all of it. And all I had left to do when I ran out of money was to create a threshold between the old wood floor and the new wood floor. That was in 2013. This picture is from yesterday. There's a little gap in the corner where you can get a splinter still. And I I tell my wife, that's to remind us of where we've been. So we never forget where we come from, right? Like, it would be simple. Even an area rug would fix it and make it look better. But no, I'm I'm just leaving it there just in case. In 2017, my father-in-law came up and we put up a black splash. When we did that, we had an electrician come in, put in the right plugs on the the back wall of the kitchen because the right plugs weren't there, the GFCI, whatever. And the electrician put them in. He was missing one faceplate. That's all he was missing. That was in 2017. This picture is six years, seven years later. I told him I'd do it, but I don't like the red and the black. I wanted, so if I put the faceplate on, then I'll leave it there, right? But if I don't put the faceplate on, right, one day, eventually, I'll change it out for the right, for the plug that has the white buttons. At least that's what I tell myself. In 2020, I decided to build a treehouse. We were spending so much time inside with the kids, and I couldn't take it anymore. So it was like, we refinanced our house. We took a little cash out to do a couple projects. One of them was to build a little treehouse. I made a budget, drew a picture, put it on graph paper, and listed my father-in-law and friends. By the time I ran out of money and favors from people, all I had to do, all I had left to do was to paint. That was 2020. This picture is from yesterday, 2023. The wood has warped and pulled away from the side. So now the side of the thing is completely damaged and ruined. And I'm going to have to redo the whole thing one day. Except now I call it an obstacle course. Because if my kids can avoid the rusty nails and not get tetanus, it's added a whole new level to the treehouse. Now it's a game to see if you can get out of there without bleeding, right? I mean, it's, it's insane. All I had to do was paint. I got this issue where I, I, I get these projects almost done and then I can't complete it. Pray for my wife. This is a chronic condition. It causes marital conflict all the time. There's just some aversion I have to completing a project, especially if it involves paint. If I take on a project that involves paint, you, I can guarantee you that I won't finish it. I end up living in this place between the project is it's done, but it's not done yet. Today we're going to read a psalm where the psalmist illustrates a similar concept. It's this place that he describes where God has accomplished something great, but he's still not finished yet. He still has something to do. The psalmist essentially says, Lord, you've restored us. So now, Lord, restore us. If you're jumping in with us for the first time, over the past couple of weeks, we're in a series called Head for the Hills. And we're taking a look at what's called the Psalms of Ascent. They're a part of the book of Psalms. If you don't know anything about the book of Psalms, the quick and dirty version is it was the Hebrew people's psalm book. It was their hymn book, their prayer book. And they would use it to articulate songs of worship or songs of lament or prayers. And they, that was how they used it. And in there, towards the end, are a specific couple psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. They're Psalms 120 through 134. And they're known as the pilgrim songs. That's because they were sung while the Hebrew people were on their way to the temple in Jerusalem. These songs were their thoughts, their hopes, their prayers. And they prepared them 
to be in the presence of God. They used these songs to prepare them for when they would arrive and enter God's presence. And our study of this book or these psalms over the next couple weeks is to ask the question, how do we prepare ourselves to be in the presence of God? How do we prepare ourselves to worship? You've heard Dr. Jim say at the beginning of the series, I said it last week, I'll say it again this week, we might say it every week, that a lot of effort goes into the content of the service. Over half the hours that I worked this week went into preparing this sermon, well over half. And a lot of work goes into the songs and and the preparation for that and the videos. The content, it seems, is the most important thing by all the effort that goes into it. And a lot of effort goes into the context. The building is cooled, it's cleaned, it's set up in such a way. We paid lots of money for equipment, lots of money for plumbing, all the things so that we have a beautiful context and a meaningful context to enter into the presence of God. But do we realize or do we take into account the preparation that's needed for our comportment, that is for how we show up. Are we mindful of that? We work on the content, we work on the context, but do we work on ourselves, how we end up here? Because the truth is, that's 10,000 times more important than the content, how we show up with our hearts. It's a million times more important than the context. And I think I can illustrate this by, and maybe you can too, you've been in a place where the sermon was was rotten. It was awful. There was no preparation. The speaker wasn't good. And you've been in a place where the music was a little, that made you cringe. And you've been in a place where maybe they didn't have AC. Or maybe you've been in a place in another country where you've been worshiping in a hut or under a shade of a tree or out in the middle of nowhere. And in those places, I've still had some of the most incredible encounters with God. That's to say that the content and the context is not what makes the the time of corporate worship meaningful. It is how we enter into those spaces, how we enter into those places, and if we're ready to meet and experience God. And so today, we'll continue our journey of asking that question. How do we prepare ourselves to be in the presence of God together? And Psalm 125 and 126 will be our text for today, and we'll take some lessons away from it on how to prepare our hearts. So we'll start in 125, verse 1, and it says this, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken, but endures forever. The psalmist starts out talking about the power of those who trust in the Lord. He says their trust in God makes them unshakable. Essentially, their trust in God makes them faithful righteous. That statement alone, before we even get into the rest of the verse, verses, that statement alone is powerful and worthy of our attention. You see, because the culture in which this psalm writer is writing is surrounded by a pantheon of religions and gods. There, Israel is well aware of all the different ways different tribes and peoples and countries worship their gods. It's a polytheistic culture And they're well accustomed to the practices of all the other religions because they've been enslaved by them, uh, oppressed by them. They've been neighbors to them. And if you've read the Old Testament, you're familiar with names like Baal, right? They they knew how these other gods were worshipped. They knew the practices that went into worshipping these other gods. And those practices 
were, were no small things. Those practices demanded a lot of those religious followers, of their believers. Self-flagellation, asceticism to a way to, to violating your own body in some of those practices. Baal was believed to be asleep, and so there was people who had to wake him up, and that was their job. That's what it was to be a, a faithful priest in that religion. You had sacrifices that were incredibly costly, that, that it would cost the family a ton of what their wealth or what they had, and even sacrifices that required the life of a human. In contrast, the psalmist says that those who trust in the Lord, they're unshakable, they're faithful, they're doing what God would desire them to do. Now, you might right, po rightly point out, well, doesn't the Old Testament require sacrifices? Isn't the God that we read about, Yahweh, doesn't he call his people to sacrifice? And you'd be correct. But I think we often misunderstand that, misinterpret that, because to my thinking, and I'm not, I'm not right all the time, you read it yourself and walk away with what you think, but to my thinking, what God does in the Old Testament sacrificial system is he meets the people where they are. You see, the people have had sacrificial systems bred into them. That's how they know how to interact with the divine. That's what they've seen around them. And so God, in his mercy and his love and his grace, he, he meets them where they are. But he limits it. He says, you, you're not going to give everything. You're not going to sacrifice everything. Abraham, remember Abraham and Isaac, You're not going to sacrifice Isaac. I'm not going to take human life. And we're going to do it, this in an ethical way. If this is what you need in order to experience me, to know that you're right with me, then here are some limited ways to do that. I think God meets them where they are. But if you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, you'll know that God chastised the people all the time, especially through the prophets, for thinking that their sacrifices were accomplishing something. Right, so if you're like, well, I don't know, I don't buy that, Chris. Well, think about it. God is consistently calling the people out and saying, your righteousness, your sacrifices are like filthy rags. Hosea 6.6, he says this, for I desire mercy and sacrifice and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. God wasn't interested in that, but that's what the people needed. He's interested in an acknowledge of him. A trust in him is what he desires. And that's what makes someone unshakable. I wonder if we take into account the power that our trust in God has and how we relate to God. Especially given the skepticism of our culture. I mean, we live in a culture with a lot of trust issues, do we not? You know what I'm talking about? I mean, we are skeptics for all For all the filth and spew and hate that social media has created in our world, I can't deny, and you can't either, that it has exposed evil. That it's been used in a helpful way to expose liars, cheats, frauds, abusers. And that stuff has gone viral to the point that our society had to react. It couldn't be ignored. But that has made us all the more skeptical, especially of authority especially of church authorities, because churches are in these places that they're getting exposed for their evil. And so this skepticism that I think we almost naturally have, now we have it even more. 
I think humanity always had trust issues, but since the time of the Enlightenment, I think it's only been compounded or gotten more complicated. You see, the Enlightenment entered into our world that if you can't prove it with facts, if you can't prove it in an argument, then it's not true. Now, I don't begrudge that. I think that's helpful. I think it's helped us as a society advance in many, many ways. But you can't discount the fact that that skepticism is bred into us. We're skeptics first. We doubt first. We trust second. That's how the majority of us approach life, approach things, because it's been bred into us by the culture. And all of this to say, I don't think we can underestimate how this plays into our relationship with God, the trust issues that we have with God, which makes the presence of this word trust in the Psalm of Ascent all the more powerful for us today. The pilgrims, the Jewish pilgrims, prepare themselves for worship by singing about their trust in God. Do we regularly remind ourselves to trust God? Do we challenge ourselves, call ourselves to trust Him more? I think when preparing for worship, we must remember that trust is a must. I just had to rhyme with trust, right? It was just too easy. Trust, trust is vital. It plays a huge role in how we encounter God, how we know God. And so let's start using the word trust more often when we talk about how we relate to God, when we talk about our life, our future, our current state. This singing, those who trust in the Lord, it's, a, it's affirmational of what we believe, but I think it's also aspirational. I, I don't think the Hebrew people were just singing about what they were. I think they were aspiring to trust more. Why do I think that? Because they compare themselves to Mount Zion. The psalmist says those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. Mount Zion is like the most holy of places on earth. It was believed to be the place that God resided. It was his throne. That's how they understood it. It was not an ordinary mountain. They didn't compare themselves to the Rockies or the Appalachians. They compared themselves to the most holy mountain and the Israelites' understanding of where God was. That, was. that was God's seat on earth. To be compared to Mount Zion because you trust so well, that's no small thing. Listen, if I was going to compare myself to something about how well I trust God, it wouldn't be a mountain, right? I, I don't know about you, but I'm trying to be honest here. Like, it might be grass, like I could sit there, but I get swayed by the wind. Or maybe a tree, right? I'm rooted deep enough that I'm not going anywhere. But when the wind starts blowing, I start moving with the wind. But to compare myself to a mountain and and then the most holy mountain at that, I, I don't think the people trusted God that much. I think in saying this, in praying this, in singing this, it was also aspiring to it. And I think it calls us to question, do we aspire to that kind of trust? Are we calling ourselves to trust in God in that sort of way? And can trust really accomplish that? Can it really make us people who are unshakable? Jesus, he uses a different metaphor to talk about the exact same thing in Matthew 7. In the Sermon on the Mount, you might be familiar with it. He talks about the man who built his house on solid rock right? 
And he says, the rain came, the steams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had a foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears the words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on a sand. Jesus is talking about trust. If you trust me, if you believe what I say, if you take my words into account, into practice, you will be unshakable. That is what it means to follow me, is to trust me. Too often, I think we overcomplicate what it means to be people of Jesus. We like to burden ourselves. We like to create performative acts. We like to judge ourselves based on our sacrifices or whatever performative acts. Sometimes we function more like the pagans in the, in the pantheon of religions in the Old Testament than we do as the people who simply trust in God. To what level are you conscious of your trust in God? And do you call yourself and challenge yourself to put your trust in God? Perhaps as we come into our times of worship, as you walk down that sidewalk, or as you drive here, or as there's musical breaks in the songs that we sing, maybe that's a moment for you to say, God, I trust you. Even being here is a sign that I want to trust you more. God, Make me unshakable. Teach me how to trust. Then the psalmist follows up this talk on trust with a pep talk of sorts. He says in Psalm 125, 2 through 5, As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people, both now and forevermore. The scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous. For then the righteous might use their hands to do evil. Lord, do good to those who are good, who the, to those who are upright in heart. But those who turn to crooked ways, the Lord will banish with the evildoers. Peace on Israel. I think it's fascinating that the psalmist talks about trusting in the Lord, and then he immediately names how difficult and complex that is. The psalmist is not interested in a naive trust that pretends like everything's okay. It's not like he says, we trust in God and plugs his ears, closes his eyes and says, everything's fine, everything's fine, everything's fine. We trust in God, it's gonna be okay. He says, we trust in God. He says, God surrounds us and protects us. And then he names the thing that makes it difficult to trust God. He says, the scepter of the wicked will not long remain on the land, which means the scepter of the wicked is what? On the land. Now, we don't know exactly when the psalm was written. Like many of the psalms, we don't know the author. We don't know the time period. But most scholars and commentators tend to think that this was written in the post-exilic period. That's the moments after the Babylonian exile where the people who were taken into captivity were allowed to return. Cyrus the Great had released them. They were not free. They were just able to go home and to rebuild their lives. This is where we get the book of Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem. This is where we get the book of Ezra and the rebuilding of the temple. The people were allowed to go home, but they were not free. They didn't control their own destiny. They were still under Cyrus. They were just allowed to go home. That's the scepter of the wicked that he's talking about, is that there's someone else oppressing us, enslaving us, owning us, deciding our freedom or restraining our freedom. 
And if you were a Jew who would be singing this song in that period or any period in your history up until the time of Jesus, you'd be hard-pressed to look at any point in your history where there wasn't a scepter of wicked that was oppressing, enslaving your people. There's a very short period where Israel seems to control their own destiny, and that doesn't last long in comparison to the rest of what happens to them. So to talk about trusting God in verse 1, verse 2, that God surrounds us and protects us, and then to say, but, but the scepter of the wicked won't long remain on this land, is to acknowledge the difficulty of what it is to actually trust God. It's to name the things that make it difficult to add it. And then he adds, he says, for then the righteous might use their hands to do evil. Essentially, God, if you don't do something, we're going to do something evil in order to remove these oppressors, these people. This is an authentic, bold worship song. And if you've been with us the past couple weeks for this series, perhaps you're starting to notice a theme. And the theme is this. Authentic worship doesn't pretend that everything is all right, that everything is perfect. Authentic worship doesn't pretend that everything is perfect. Now, this is true for a lot of the Psalms, not just the Psalms of Ascent, but here again we see in the Pilgrim's Journey this preparation for worship and a willingness to address the pain or the complexity or the difficulty of this life. And as I read this and prayed about it and was thinking about it, I just got to ask, can, can you tell me where American Christianity got this idea that we show up to houses of worship, to churches, and we pretend like everything's great? I don't know your church background, but if you grew up in, an America, in America and, and in a Christian setting and you spent time looking at churches or going to churches or checking out churches, I assume your experience is like mine, where there's this inclination for people to come into these places and act like they have it all together, to act like life is perfect, to not acknowledge the difficulty or the pain of life, to pretend like it's okay, because somehow they think that that's what makes them holy. Churches were playing the social media game before there was even social media, right? We were posting pictures in our pews about how perfect our lives were when really things were a lot more difficult than we let on. Where did we get this idea? Because I'm telling you, it's from the pit of hell. It's anti-biblical. It, it makes no sense, especially when you look at the book of Psalms. These people are acknowledging what makes it difficult to trust God and choosing to trust Him all the same. They're reminding God to do good because they don't see it. They can't experience it yet. So they're saying, God, do good. Move in my life. Move amongst our people. Do good to those who are good. Perhaps more of us would need to follow the example of the Psalms of Ascent and on our way to be in the presence of God, we name the things that make it difficult to be in the presence of God. On our way to a place where we acknowledge and declare our trust in God, we also name the things that make it difficult to trust God. That we don't hide that, but in fact, that is what enhances our worship. That's what helps draw us to the place of worship. We declare our trust in God and we name the things that make it difficult to trust Him. So then we jump into Psalm 126, and unlike some of the other Psalms, there's a strong chance that these two were written to be back-to-back -to -back together. 
Verse 1, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. It was too good to be true, essentially. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. In the past tense, the psalmist declares what God has done. The psalmist here, Psalm 126, teaches us, illustrates for us what it is to know our stories. When we know our story, it leads to joy-filled worship. Part of the Jewish pilgrim's journey in preparing for worship was to tell the story of what God had done. Because as they told that story, it led to joy. It put laughter in their mouths, joy in their songs. One of the most repeated commands throughout Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, is to remember. Remember. In many different ways, God says, the prophets say, the leaders say, remember what God had done. From generation to generation, pass it on. When you're at home, sitting at home, talk about it when you sit at home. Talk about it when you walk along the road. Psalm 106 says, then they believed his promises and sang his praise, but they soon forgot what he had done for them, what he had done, and did not wait for his plans to unfold. I'm going to teach you something this morning that if you listen to nothing else, walk away with this. And it's this. Memory builds faith. You got that? Memory builds faith. That's why we encourage people to have a practice that helps them remember what God has said, what God has done. Albeit a journal, a a prayer list. Something that you can go back to and see what God has done. For some people, it's a picture that's on the wall. For some people, it's uh, something else, uh, a piece of jewelry or a tattoo. I don't care what it is, but something that helps your memory remember what God has done. Think of all the rituals the Jews have to remind them of God. A yarmulke reminds them that God is above. The mezuzah on the doorpost reminds them of the Shema. The Passover every year is basically the retelling of the story of how God rescued them. Basically, it's like this. I don't know if this is true in your family, but in in my family, every time my family gets together, there's always at least one person who tells the same story every time. Anybody else have that person in their family you know what I'm talking about? Especially if it's like a big family gathering, there's always that one person who tells the same story over and over. Like nobody's ever heard it and laughs about it like nobody's ever heard it before. You know, right? I, usually it's an uncle with memory issues who's been drinking. You know what I'm talking about? They just had a little too much and all of a sudden they're over and over. That's basically what Passover is. It's telling the same story over and over again because that memory builds faith. Can I tell you something? You need a drunk uncle with memory issues in your life who just tells the same story over and over and over again. But that story is your story of faith. It's the story of what God's done in your life because hearing that story over and over and over again, that story builds faith. To remember is to remember yourself to the story of God. It's to remember yourself to the people of God. 
And if you don't know your story, if you don't tell your story, if you don't talk about your story, if you can't remember the story of what God's done, then you miss all the fun. You miss the joy. The Psalms teach us that it's those tellings of the story, knowing that story, that fills us with hope, fills us with joy. I love what Martin Luther says. He says, to get, then our mouth was filled with laughter, talking about this verse. We must earnestly endeavor to learn this practice, or at least to attain some knowledge thereof. And we must raise ourselves up with this consideration that the gospel is nothing else but laughter and joy. C.S. Lewis said in his book, uh, Letters to Malcolm, joy is the serious business of heaven. Neither one of those pictures, those guys look happy though. It's pretty, it's pretty sad. But where does, where's the laughter in our worship? Where's the we can't contain the joy? Perhaps what is missing is a familiarity with our stories, of a retelling ourselves our stories, a retelling of those to those around us so that our mouths will be filled with joy and laughter because of what God has done. Let me encourage you to have practices that help you remember, that help you remember what God has done. Journaling prayer lists, practices where you see something or you touch something or you wear something. I wear a ring that reminds me of something that God has done. And that, that, that builds faith. I've never done this, but I, I want to do this. This is my journal. If, anybody, if I leave this anywhere, I swear on all that's holy and pure, you give it back to me and don't read it, Okay. Like just bringing this into this building makes me nervous. But this is mine. It has my name, my phone number, and my email in the front if you find it. This is from August 18th, 2022, last August. Well, I'm meeting with Dr. Jim at 9 a.m. for breakfast this morning. He's excited to share with me what he's been working on, but I don't think he has any idea what I'm going to share. I'm really nervous as I imagine all the ways this is going to go wrong but I'm still going to go through with it. I'm going to share how much I love Columbia, but I just can't see my future here anymore. I go on to describe some things that I felt like God had confirmed, some doors that he had closed, some things that I had experienced, and it gets pretty raw and vulnerable. But then I have a little red note at the top, and it says, see November 14th, 2022. Yesterday, November 13th, 2022, Columbia Baptist Church voted to, make, to move to a polycentric leadership model, and they voted to call me as their co-pastor. 27 years ago, I felt the first nudge from God towards vocational ministry. At 21, I went from volunteering at a church to getting paid, and that's when it started. In the next 18 years, God ripped my ego from me, taught me to be content. He showed me what matters, protected me from my zeal, gave me a space to learn, and taught me to hear his voice, and today I graduated. Let me tell you, when I read that last night, my wife was sleeping in the room next to me and I was laughing. I was filled with joy because I, I, I can't even read the words from the day that I was distraught because this is church. But you gotta know that I was in a place where I didn't know and then a couple months later, I'm reading and it builds faith. So the next time I come to a crossroads, I wonder, does God know what he's doing? Has God lost his mind? Has he forgotten me? Does he see me? Does he remember me? Does he see my situation? I read things like that and it builds my faith. 
Church, we got to remember what God did. And then, then the psalmist continues, 123, verse 126, verses 3 through 6. Then the Lord had done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like the streams in Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seeds to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Basically, the psalmist teaches us this, is that that joy-filled worship, it exists between two places. It exists between the place where God has done something and we're still asking him to do something. They said, God, you restored us. Now, Lord, restore us. Joy-filled worship exists between what God has done and what God is going to do. Memory builds faith. We essentially say, if he did it then, he can do it again. And isn't it true that we exist in a place between where God has restored us and he's still restoring us? We're still asking him to move. Those two things aren't mutually exclusive. The Jewish pilgrims filled their gas tanks with stories of what God had done. They start with what God had done, and then they move to what they're asking God to do. They tell the stories of how God had moved. That fills them with joy and makes them expectant for how they want to see God move. This is true for them, and it's true for you, that your story is the gas in your faith tank. If you want to get your vehicle from what God has done to what you want him to do, then your story is the gas you need in the tank. Your story is what gives you the joy and the hope and the expectancy and the anticipation to see what God wants to do. And if your tank is empty, maybe you need to re-story. Maybe you need to take a look at the story your story, and ask, where have I seen God move? And if you don't know how to do that, you find someone who can help you do it and look back over your life and say, this is where God moved. This is where God moved. And you write it down, and you let that be the gas in your faith tank. I spent a summer working in a warehouse. It was a random job. Uh, it was the, the warehouses, the big, huge pallet shelves, kind of like you see in like a Home Depot or a Lowe's. And no matter how we organized the place, no matter what we did, and it was a marketing warehouse, so it's lots of just pallets full of marketing materials back when, when everything was in paper. And no matter how we organized it, how well thought out we were, whenever somebody needed something, it was always on the top. It doesn't matter what we did. It was always on the top. And I wasn't forklift certified, which means I couldn't drive the forklift during business hours. You know what I'm saying? Because <laughs> I drove it, just not when I was supposed to be doing my job is when I drove it, right? So, and I, so I wasn't going to call the forklift guy because I wasn't going to give him the satisfaction that he was certified and I wasn't, Right? So I reached and I reached. I figured out ways to reach. I climbed. I had poles that I duct taped hangers and other doohickeys to the top of it so I could reach and knock down whatever I want because who wants to go grab a ladder, right? That makes sense. But no, I want to prove that I can reach it. And you do this too. I've seen you in stores. I've seen you reaching. The sign clearly says, do not reach. Ask for help, right? Get an employment. But what do you do? You're like, I, ah, ah. 
I get it, right? My kids do this. They're trying to get something high and they're climbing on those Ikea shelves. And I'm like, Ikea wasn't made to hold you, all right? Get down from there. I can just reach it. But there's something about us that wants to reach, to grab that which is out of our hands, that we just, we, we could just get a little bit higher. And what I want to offer you this morning is we need to do more reaching. We need to reach more Let's apply some of that reaching effort in our worship and our preparation for worship. Let's reach like this psalmist is reaching for the restoration of God. Let's reach and say, restore us, Lord. You've done it. Now do it again. Asking, longing, envisioning, hoping, dreaming of what God can do, of what God wants to do. The psalmist says, restore our fortunes, Lord, like the streams of Negev. The psalmist is so smart. He gives the people a mental picture to go along with this dream. The streams of Negev, you'd be hard-pressed to call them streams because for the majority of the year, it's just dry ground. But for a small portion of the year, the floods come in such a way that they cut streams into that ground. And he was saying to the people, reach for that restoration. Ask God to do what he's going to do. And think of it like those streams that don't exist for most of the year. But when the rain comes, they're there. And we're reaching for restoration. Reaching for restoration is give, it's giving yourself a picture of what God can do, of what you want God to do, of what you believe God to do. Get ready to worship by reaching for restoration. Pray a prayer that sounds like Psalm 125 and 126, where the psalmist starts with, I trust you, God. I trust you. And then moves into what makes that trust difficult. I trust you, God, but even though this thing, fill in the blank, makes it difficult to trust. And then remind yourself of your story. Remind yourself that if God did it then, he can do it again. Remind yourself that, God, you've restored me. And then reach for restoration. But, God, you have something else you want to do. God, you're not done yet. You're still moving. You're still leading. You're still calling. You're still convicting. You're still healing. You're still teaching. And so, God, you've restored me. So now, God, restore me. Let's pray. So God, help us to be those people who trust you and who desire to trust you more. Who trust you and name the things that make it difficult to trust you, but declare that we will trust you in the midst of those. Help us to be people who know our story, to know what you've done, and that when we know our story, when we restory, we are restored. And it builds faith to see and believe and be expectant of what you still want to do. Move in our lives, in our jobs, office places, neighborhoods, in our schools, in our families, and in our church and community, we pray. Restore us, Lord, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Metro DC area, we would love to worship with you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about all the incredible things happening at Columbia, 
go to columbiabaptist.org. That's columbiabaptist.org.